listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we seek to clarify distinctions between Mormon and credo-Christian thought. I am Brendan, joined once again with... Skiles. And we've got another fun one coming down the pipeline for you, Lord willing. We hope and pray. I just got to say, you know, uh, Skyler came into my office about an hour ago. Just jazzed up about this one, so <laughs> so excited. <it's>, uh, <laughs> this may be a whole lot of Skyler. What do you think about this? And <laughs> yes. me just over here. Mm, mm-hmm. Ooh, yeah. Oh, you know. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. <laughs> oh, <my goodness. laughs> All right. Um, well, I got a random, you know, question for you. That's that's just got to be dealt with before we get into anything else here. And that question is, what is your favorite type of ice cream? My favorite type of ice cream? Peanut butter chocolate. Peanut butter chocolate. Yep. You know, me too. Is that, are, I'm, are Well, we, I, I mean, I might say chocolate peanut butter. A little more chocolate than peanut butter? Well, you know. We yeah, were so I close can, to I agreeing can, on I this. can truly go both ways. <laughs> I can go chocolate with like peanut butter cups in it. Yeah. Or I could go peanut butter with chocolate brownie chunks yes. or something like that. Either way. Yeah. Either way sounds delicious. We, we uh, when we lived in Texas, um, we lived in a house. And in Texas, you've got alleys behind every house, alleyways, where the dumpsters and stuff are. And so your backyard butts up against an alley that basically is a miniature road. And so we could go into our alley and just walk about three houses down and end up at an ice cream shop there that's called Brahms, which anybody who's, you know, been to Texas from Texas or even Oklahoma, it's kind of a local fast food place. It started as an ice cream joint, but they they have burgers and stuff too and a little grocery store. But I cannot tell you how many walks down that alley I did to go and pick up some Brahms. But, you know, here's probably the even more sad confession, which this is just when you know you're at the low the lowest of lows in your life is when you're, you only live, you know, 50 feet from the 50 yards, probably more so 50 yards from the ice cream shop. And, and you're so pathetic that you get in your car to drive, (laughs) to get the ice cream and then drive back. Yeah, that happened. And I went through the drive through. Yes, I did. Yeah. Yes, I did. Well, the question is, if you were in the 1850s, would you have gotten in the hand cart, gotten out the horse? No, it no, wouldn't, it wouldn't no. have been worth it. No, nope. It's too much to hitch up your horse, but <laughs> I can turn track. a key. I can turn a key in the ignition and get on over there pretty easily. So, <laughs> yeah, we don't live close to an ice cream shop here, so we're a lot more self-controlled. But our thing here in Utah for a while became crumble cookie, but yeah. we don't do that much anymore. I started to, I actually did the math. I was like, man, if we go get crumble cookie like once a week, I end up giving hundreds of dollars to them a year. I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. So is (laughs) it once a month now or? It's not even that. I don't don't even remember the last time we went. So we've been experimenting with other sweet shops. There's one shop downtown, Fillings and Emulsions. Have you been to that one? No. Oh my goodness. You need to go. Downtown Provo. Downtown Provo. Fillings and Emulsions. So good. Well, Best cakes. My wife is a baker, and she yeah. loves that place. She's, like, super impressed with it because 
Yeah. Well, I trust her judgment. Those Christmas, what was it? Uh, walnuts. Oh, yeah. Those were so good. Yeah. I'd buy them if yep. she were to make them. She so. just, our second daughter just had her eighth birthday, seventh birthday. <laughs> it's on February 8th. So that's my excuse for <laughs> getting that confused there. But uh, Julie makes like cakes for the uh, kids and they all have their own designated cake. She makes the same cake each year and your cake gets chosen based on what seasonal ingredients are fresh at the time. And so typically strawberries are pretty well in season this time of year. So Annie's cake has always been a chocolate strawberry cake and oh man, one of the best cakes that uh, I've ever had this past week. She, she altered some of the recipe just to fine tune it cause she's been fine tuning it, you know, for seven mm-hmm. years, but Oh, it was like, this uh, chocolate ganache layered in with this chocolate cake with this strawberry filling. Oh, it was. I'm assuming it's gone. Oh, my goodness. I think there's one piece left because we have a tradition that you have to leave the last piece for the birthday kid. So, uh, yeah. So, the, so it's as know. good as gone. Yeah, it's, possi- it's it. possible Annie already ate that. So it could be, <laughs> could be game over. could be gone. But uh, anyways, I don't know how we got there from ice cream, but here we are. Should we get into it? Let's do it. All right. Let me start start us off today actually reading a passage of Scripture for us, and then I'm going to read from the Westminster Shorter Catechism in relation to the passage of Scripture. And we're going to take a little bit of time to do this because uh, it is a tad lengthy, but not too lengthy. And it's just good to listen and absorb this stuff. And so, um, yeah, just follow along. This is from Matthew six, which that's what the curriculum in the come follow me curriculum is covering for this week is Matthew six and seven. And, uh, and so I want to actually read from Matthew six. This is in the English standard version, and I'm going to read from verses nine to 13 it says this pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. I know forever! <laughs> yes. This is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'm going to read a number of points. If you don't know what a catechism is, a catechism is a tool for teaching, uh, specifically for teaching doctrine. And so it's a question and answer format. So you ask a question, and then you give the theological answer to it. And in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Baptist Catechism as well, you have really rich theological answers. And then you also have, and this is noteworthy because we continue to emphasize this, you have all of the scripture references that are being drawn upon to give an accurate theological answer to the question. Uh, So this is simply a way of stating the truth that is represented in the Bible. The Bible is the standard. It is the authority. So just know that anytime we're dealing with creeds and confessions, we're not saying that those things are the highest authority. We're saying that they are articulating the truths found in the Bible, which is the, capital T-H-E, authority. 
So here's question 98 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is prayer? Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. What rule hath God given for our direction in prayer? The whole word of God is of use to direct us in prayer. But this special rule of direction is that form of prayer which Christ taught his disciples, commonly called the Lord's Prayer. What doth the the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? The preface of the Lord's Prayer, which is our Father, which art in heaven, teacheth us to draw near to God with all holy reverence and confidence, as children to a father, able and ready to help us, and, and that we should pray with and for others. What do we pray for in the first petition? In the first petition, which is, Hallowed be thy name, we pray that God would enable us and others to glorify him in all that whereby he maketh himself known, and that he would dispose all things to his own glory. What do we pray for in the second petition? In the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. 103. What do we pray for in the third petition? In the third petition, which is thy will be done, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray that God, by his grace, would make us able and willing to know, obey, and submit to his will in all things as the angels do in heaven. 104. What do we pray for in the fourth petition? In the fourth petition, which is give us this day our daily bread, we pray that we pray that of God's free gift we may receive a competent portion of the good things in this life and enjoy his blessing with them. What do we pray for in the fifth petition? In the fifth petition, which is, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, we pray that God, for Christ's sake, would freely pardon all our sins, which we are which we are the rather encouraged to ask, because by his grace we are enabled from the heart to forgive others. What do we pray for in the sixth petition? In the sixth petition, which is, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we pray that God would either keep us from being tempted to sin or support and deliver us when we are tempted. 107, what doth the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teach us? This is the last question of the Catechism. The conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, which is, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Teacheth us to take our encouragement in prayer from God only. In our, and, in, and in our prayers to praise him, ascribing kingdom, power, and glory to him, and in testimony of our desire and assurance to be heard, we say, amen. So, we're going to focus, yeah, we're going to focus a lot on the Lord's Prayer today, which is why we read that, because that is one of the main focuses within the LDS curriculum as well. And so we're going to do some comparing and contrasting in how we interpret the prayer and how... LDS scholars and the like have interpreted the prayer. But before we do that, let me just do a quick general overview of the Come Follow Me, which is the LDS curriculum once again. And uh, this is the curriculum for the week of February 20th to 26th, 2023. Again, you don't have to be in that week to follow along with the content, but just know that that is when this was being taught in all of the uh, LDS uh, wards across the world. And uh, this is covering Matthew 6 and 7. The title of this lesson is, He Taught Them as One Having 
authority. We get down to the Teach the Doctrine section, and it is subdivided into a number of subsections. The first is covering Matthew 6 and 7 kind of as a whole, broad sweep. And the subtitle of that section is, If we hear and act on the Lord's teachings, our lives will be built on a firm foundation. So it's, again, this hear and do 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 and your life will be built on a solid foundation. The key to all of this uh, is to build a foundation by doing the works that Jesus is telling you to do. And uh, so that's the premise of the teaching there. Then it moves on to Matthew 6, verses 5 to 13, which is the Lord's Prayer. And that's where we're going to focus the bulk of our attention today. But the subtitle of that section is The Savior Taught Us How to Pray. And the lesson encourages the class to just identify how they could perhaps improve their own prayers by following the Lord's example. And so they are supposed to look at the prayer and see, okay, how can you improve the way that you pray according to what we see happening here? And then it moves on to Matthew 7, 7 to 11, which is ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened, uh, if you're familiar with that passage. And the subtitle here is Heavenly Father Answers Prayers. And so the encouragement is ask class members um, or help class members strengthen their faith that God will hear and answer their prayers by doing this exercise where class members are searching the scriptures to see what other characters asked and sought and knocked. Uh, and then it also says, for examples of this, and, and this is significant because we continue to see this, right? All of the examples that they're told to look up, none of them are from our canon as evangelical credo or credo Christians. All of the examples are First Nephi 11.1, 1, Ether 2, 18 to 36, and then the Joseph Smith History, yeah. Volume 1, uh, from page 11 to 17. So those that's, are... Yeah, that's where all our creeds and confessions are called an abomination. Yeah. Yeah. Really? That's interesting. I didn't look it yep. up. So yep. there you go. Um, and then, of course, there is some important context for Matthew 7, 7 to 11 can be found in the Joseph Smith translation. And so they're pointing us to the Joseph Smith translation, which we've seen that consistently, right? Um, there's not ever in a single one of these lessons just a dealing with the text as it is. It's always a look at this additional revelation or something that's been said about it or, you know, the way that it's said there has been made more accurate in the Joseph Smith translation. So there's a constant undermining of the actual words of the scripture to sharpen it according to what the LDS worldview is. We, we just see that as a consistent pattern at this point in every single lesson. And then you've got Matthew 7, 15 to 20. And uh, that is the passage about uh, the tree and its fruit. And I'm just going to actually read this whole passage out loud because we're not going to cover it in depth per se, but we're probably going to come back to it somewhat at the end because this is significant to a lot of the things that Skylar has for us today. So listen, listen to Matthew seven fifteen to 20. And this is out of the English Standard Version once again. This is, this is God's word. That's what it says. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. 
A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Okay? The subtitle for that section of Scripture in the Come, Follow Me manual is simply, we can identify true and false prophets by their fruits. Okay, so far so good, right? Now, I just want to read this whole section here because I think it's relevant. Members of your class have likely come across false philosophies and other deceptions of the adversary. Okay, so here we go. They're they're starting to... Now, we might even say those exact same words in an evangelical context, right? Members of your class may have come across false philosophies or other exceptions adversary. I think this is an interesting note, whether on the internet or from other sources, right? The, the internet has just been a bear to the LDS church um, because of all that's been revealed as a result of being able to access information so easily. But that's a story for another day. They may have also heard others criticize the Lord's servants. Okay, here we go. Right, we start to have the turn. Right, of how do you how do you identify false philosophy from true philosophy? Well, watch out from people that you've heard criticize the Lord's servants. Yeah. Okay, who are the Lord's servants? Right. How can you help them understand how to discern false prophets and teachings from true ones? You could display several pieces of fruit and ask what we can assume about the trees that they come from. How does this exercise help us understand Matthew seven fifteen to 20? You could also read together some recent messages from the living prophets. All right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so if anybody's criticizing LDS prophets or living prophets whatsoever, then those people are a person who is, trying to convince an LDS person toward a false philosophy or some deception of the adversary. In other words, you cannot question the prophets. Don't do it. To question the prophets at all is to participate in deception. And so what you're supposed to do within the LDS faith is uh, identify the living prophets for who they are, uh, what fruits or outcomes come from following the counsel that they are giving to you. And then Matthew seven fifteen to 20 could help build class members' faith in the divine mission, listen to this, of the prophet Joseph Smith. What are the fruits of the work Joseph Smith accomplished? So everything is going straight back to Joseph Smith. What are the fruits of the work that Joseph Smith accomplished? It's fascinating that they're not asking what was the fruit of Joseph Smith's life anymore, but rather yeah. what are the fruits of what his work accomplished? What he accomplished. That's, yeah. a, that's a sleight of hand. It is a sleight of hand, isn't it? Because yeah. there's information that's been revealed through the internet, including places like our podcast, that uh, which we haven't really done anything on the history of Joseph Smith yet. We, we could. Yeah, but... Let's just say Joseph Smith was not a man who was abounding in good gospel fruit no. in terms of the way that we would define it according to the scriptures. And uh, we'll get into that actually some today. Um, as we talk about the Lord's Prayer, we'll get to see some of how Joseph Smith's philosophy and worldview still is at the root and core of the LDS faith. And uh, we would say that it is not good fruit. It's actually the opposite. It is... It is that which leads people away into the worship of, of false idols. 
Um, so yeah, that's what we have in the curriculum this week. And, uh, we're going to go ahead and just get straight into the Lord's prayer and start to focus on it. I will say that in the individual and family manuals, we've been touching on that as well. Some there's nothing significantly different than what we see in the, uh, Sunday school manual. So there's not much I'm going to touch on there because we are going to focus the bulk of our time in the uh, the Lord's Prayer. So I think at this point, Skyler, I'm really just going to turn it over to you to start to build out for us this historic understanding of the Lord's Prayer and how that connects into some deeper Mormon thought. Because I know that's a lot of where you want to go today is to maybe step back a little bit and look at a whole worldview to see how they deal with prayer within their worldview and why they deal with it in the way that they do and why they would have some disagreements with us on the way that we might approach prayer because it is two very distinct and different worldviews at the core. Totally. I think at the core of it, it, you kind of see in what's not said, even in the manual you just went through, right, where it says, um, as we ponder the Savior's words, what do we learn about prayer? There's not a thought to the object of prayer, who we're praying to, and what this prayer teaches us about God and man and salvation and sovereignty of God and all that. And you kind of see who I, I like to say, um, before moving on from this manual, I love how <laughs> you pointed this out, Savior's phrases as things they might say in their own prayers. For example, or for instance, they say, give us this day our daily bread, and then they paraphrase it, right? Mm-hmm. Please help me in my efforts to provide for my family. Yeah. It's a little different, uh, that, but I, I do appreciate that they finally gave an explanation of a verse in this, and that's not at all what Jesus is saying that we say, right? Now, that's not to say we don't work hard for the bread, but... Obviously, the in the prayer, it's complete dependence upon God that's being communicated. Yeah, in the prayer. Yeah. So, just to be clear, yes, the language they say is, "Please help me in my, my efforts. efforts." Exactly. Um, so it's not that we don't we pray don't. for the Lord to provide daily bread, but the idea again that we keep seeing that's so different is our gospel is a gospel of dependence upon God for all of our needs. He's our God who provides for us. The LDS gospel is you work for your own stuff. Yeah. And so it's kind of this more so Jesus is like a, um, an example. I always think of him as kind of like the, the big brother who's already playing on varsity. He's, he's on the varsity football squad, you know, and, and he's out there making big plays and he's the star player and everybody loves him but you're the little brother who's like the freshman, you know, and you haven't hit your growth spurt or puberty yet. And uh, you want to play football and you're on the team, but you're on the freshman squad and you're, you're going to grow eventually, hopefully to be exactly like your big brother, but you're not, but your big brother's there to help you. He's there to coach you. He's there to, but you've got to put in the work. You've got to do all the work truly. And uh, he's just kind of there to be an encouragement to you. Mm-hmm. That's so different from the idea that we believe, which is that our our entire lives are dependent upon a sovereign God, and he is a God who provides for all of our needs. And so we pray to him out of that dependence. Yeah, and, and 
I think if you keep going in Matthew as well, what's the bread by which we become citizens of this kingdom? The body of Jesus. There's no sense of the continuing flow of Matthew to say nothing of the other three. And what is the bread we need to actually have life? Yeah. Well, and I, yeah, even as we've already covered in the temptations, man does not live by bread alone. Exactly. But, but by every word that proceeds from the mm-hmm. mouth of God. So yep. the whole point of all this as we are walking through the scriptures, I mean, the gospel writers, again, are just trying to get you to Jesus. They're trying to get you to dependence upon God and what he has done rather than trying to be self-sufficient. But it's continually, which this is, again, as we've mentioned, what theological liberalism does. It turns all of these glorious proclamations of the gospel, announcing what God has done for us, uh, it it turns all of that uh, completely away, throws it aside, and makes all of the Bible into nothing more than some good moral lessons to make you a better you. And so it centers the scriptures on self Mm -hmm. uh, rather than on God. And uh, as we read the Bible rightly, our attention ought to always be turned to, to the glory of God. Yep, absolutely. He's... He's not just teaching, for example, even going drawing on last uh, time, right? He's not just teaching the Beatitudes. We see him embody them That's right. throughout the gospel. I, I really like, this is uh, page 32 of uh, J. Gresham Machen's uh, Christianity and Liberalism. So it is with the whole of the discourse, uh, Sermon on the Mount. The new law of the Sermon on the Mount in itself can only produce despair. Strange indeed is the cont- complacency with which modern men can say that the golden rule and the high ethical principles of Jesus are all that they need. In reality, if the requirements for entrance into the kingdom of God are what Jesus declares them to be, we are all undone. I think deliberately drawing on Isaiah 6, we're undone Yeah, presence of this God. We are not even attained to the external righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and how shall we attain to that righteousness of the heart which Jesus demands? The Sermon on the Mount rightly interpreted then makes man a seeker after some divine means of salvation by which entrance into the kingdom can be obtained. Even Moses was too high for us, but before this higher law of Jesus, who shall stand without being condemned? The Sermon on the Mount, like all the rest of the New Testament, really leads a man straight to the foot of the cross. Oh, it's so good. It is good. And it's, you know, um, it's not Christ-centered in how they're approaching it, obviously. It's it's self-centered. And... Um, with, you know, with the engaging gospel doctrine, I mean, it's still explicit there, self-centered love. You yeah. Know? It's, you know, you got to love yourself. It's today is enough. You're enough. There's some wisdom here that can help you along your path to wholeness or whatever. And that's not how we see it, right? Yeah. We do see it as a whole. We see in Matthew 5 the ethics of the kingdom, the morality of the kingdom. And then as we move into Matthew 6, we see the piety of the kingdom, the religion of the kingdom, so to speak, giving, praying, fasting. And, of course, we see even from Luke, right, where Jesus is praying all night, he comes back, and the disciples ask him, how do we pray? And he teaches them this prayer, which assumes we need to be taught. It is not natural for us to pray rightly. We even see some of this in Romans 8, right? We don't know how to pray. We need help. And... Um, that help can come in the form of the Psalms, but we, it comes in the form of this prayer, which it cannot be emphasized enough, has been one of the more unifying features of all of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the context of our need for Jesus to teach us this 
is, of course, our finitude as creatures, but also the fall, a sinful human heart that we rarely understand God rightly, and we very, very rarely communicate to him rightly. Yeah. And all of this really is, if we could just start to get to the foundation of the Lord's Prayer, just in what you even touch touch on a bit there, um, the Lord's Prayer is set within a larger context of what Jesus is getting at, which is that the heart is what matters here, um, right? So in the beginning of uh, Matthew, you've got, um, not Matthew 6, 1, I should say, you've got Jesus said, Be, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And then jump down to verse 5, where he continues this idea. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, uh, they they have received the reward. And he, he goes on to kind of show that your, your motivation, the heart, is what really matters in prayer. Um, I just want to read a little bit out of a commentary. This is by a Credo Christian scholar, Knox Chamberlain. He has a wonderful two-volume commentary on Matthew. But he writes this, As noted, the wording of Matthew 6.1 invites comparison with 5.16. Okay, so 5.16 in Matthew. Let me just get there and read that so you know what he's talking about here. 5.16 says, In the same way, and this is interesting, Jesus says in 5.16, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So which is it, Jesus? Do I need to let myself shine out to other people and let everyone uh, see my righteousness? Or is it that I should only practice righteousness in private so that people don't see me? As noted, the wording of Matthew 6, 1 invites comparison with 5.16. Good works there corresponds to doing righteousness here. But whereas in 5.16, Jesus tells disciples to do such deeds in order that, hapas, others may see them, here he commands them not to practice righteousness in order, prosto, to be seen by others. So this is a pithy way he puts it here that I think is really helpful. It may be said that 5.16 addresses the disciples' cowardice when they are tempted to hide what they should show, and 6.1, their pride, when they are tempted to show what they should hide. So I think that's really helpful because it's getting right at the heart of what Jesus is getting at when he's teaching even on prayer, which is that there's a hypocritical way to pray. There's a way to pray that actually turns it into a self-centered exercise rather than a God-centric practice that is meant to give glory to him. And a lot of this gets right at the heart of what you see happening in a Mormon worldview. Yes. Um, and so I, I just I want you to run with that. Run with that. Okay. Just to quickly end this point. Oh, yeah. So Absolutely, good. yeah. I, I like how Terry Johnson puts it. That the problem, I mean, look at even in the prayer, our Father assumes it's with other people. So it, it's not a condemnation of public prayer per se, but the, of the temptation that comes with it. The temptation of being more mindful of those you're with than the God, the object of the prayer. Yeah. And so, I mean, we have biblical precedent for standing prayers, kneeling prayers, sitting prayers, lying prostrate prayers. You've even brought up a great one in Ezra 9 a few mm. times that is really good. Yep. Um, and, of course, this term hypocrite, 
it's a theater term. And um, this is actually really interesting insight into to Jesus's historical place. Um, walking distance from Nazareth was Sepphoris. And during Jesus's lifetime, perhaps even Jesus himself worked on the theater there, uh, which is a good context for this, to understanding this, because this is a theater term. You, you'd blow a trumpet and the play actor comes onto the stage pretending to play a role, right? And um, they also did things with hands, and of course, they disfigure their faces. This is a very much, in fact, the, the word theater in Greek has the connotation of being seen. Yep. So I think, you know, it's, which God does see us. Yeah. Right? So um, it's, it's really trying to get rid of all of the, it's a warning about not just the finitude, but the sin that can come in where we start to prioritize anything else, including ourselves, above God. Yeah. Can I, can I just read a little bit more please, of Chamberlain? Because it's right on that point. In Matthew, as in the LXS, the usage is uniformly negative. The hikopates is, is a play actor whose impressive speech belies the condition of his heart. A pretender whose outward appearance contradicts the inward reality and whose apparent godliness conceals great evil, and a performer who has the attention of the desired audience and whose actions both reveal and conceal his true motives. Again, it's all about his true motives. Those under his influence are deprived of great truth and threatened with the same condemnation that awaits him. As already intimated, it is pride that fosters hypocrisy. Pride is by nature competitive, the persons Jesus depicts are not proud of being pious, that would be vanity, but of being and of being thought to be more pious than others. Yeah. Appearances serve this purpose even when realities do not or have ceased to do so. Since it is vital for pride, pride this is so key, since it is vital for pride's sustenance and survival to be above others, Neither almsgiving nor prayer nor fasting is really done in God's presence, quorum Deo. Because for the proud and therefore the hypocritical person, the true and living God must not be brought into the picture. For he is the supreme threat to one intent upon establishing his own supremacy. Mm -hmm. Significantly, the hypocrites are said to do their righteous acts in order to be seen by men, not in order to be seen by God. Furthermore, one way such a person establishes and maintains supremacy is by exerting power mm -hmm. over those beneath him, yep. which helps explain Jesus' dire words of judgment. Yep. What is the purpose of prayer? Yes, and that's, that, you know, um, maybe one, two other points, and then I'll start breaking down the Mormonism point. Um, and maybe it'll work out better this way, starting with the positive and then yeah. the positive message we have and then going into what we're criticizing. But... You know, you see that consistently throughout this chapter where, you know, you cannot serve God in money. Yeah. Which that's right. uh, David Richards doesn't interpret as money. But mm. um, there's, there's constantly, he's making this point, all these things that we need to survive. Yep. That can so easily, and this is hard for us moderns because we're so wealthy and privileged and everything, to get, um, it, it, it's easier for us to say than Jesus to tell these people. Mm-hmm. But he's saying, no, 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 no. God is what you ultimately need, right? So I think um, there's one other point that, you know, when Jesus is teaching us how to pray, he's teaching us about God. We'll come back at the end to that. So we're learning about the object of prayer. 
who we are relative to the object of prayer. And the a, a form of the means mm-hmm. of how we pray. Yep. And if you look how God-centered it is, even when it comes to the the things we do ask, don't lead us into temptation, for example, which means what it says. Um, and we covered that in the temptation episode. Yeah. But in, in the history of Christianity, there's always been this law, lex orandi, lex credendi, that is so important and an insight into the Christian mind for those listening. That the law of prayer is the law of belief that how we pray influences what we believe and vice versa. And so this is um, something to keep in mind in how we worship God, that the theology does inform the worship, but sometimes if our worship is being influenced by the world or what we desire over other things or moves away from this, the theology of the Lord's Prayer, if not the Lord's Prayer itself, then it can influence our theology as well. Yeah, it's just I think it's just a good principle to have in mind. Yep, uh, and that's for personal prayers, but also public prayers. Yeah. So one point of the context of the Lord's Prayer then is, I think, geared towards Jews mm-hmm. and uh, this potential hypocrisy that could occur as a result of pride in a heart that wants to gain the attention of others versus glorifying God. And then the other example that's given is of the Gentiles or the pagans, right? In verse 7 of Matthew 6, it says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So there's also this reference to the way that Gentiles would have prayed Mm -hmm. to their gods and the practice that they would use in prayer. you got to remember, they didn't have the same kind of creator-creation distinction that a Jew would have had. We keep using that phrase. They would have seen their gods as being much more humanly than we do. And what I mean by that is the Gentile gods could be manipulated. Um, the Gentile gods were not of, of, a, of a sovereign, impassable state or being. Um, their gods, the theological term we use is, our God is immutable. He is unchangeable. Um, he, he, his will will be done. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but the Gentile gods, they were malleable, they were mutable, they could be manipulated and changed. And the way that a Gentile or a pagan would pray is they would offer up these repetitive prayers, thinking that basically they could wear down their God to the point that he would finally succumb to their will mm-hmm. over his will. And they could convince their God to do what they wanted uh, rather than what he might have wanted to do before. And so that's why they would do these repetitive prayers over and over and over and over Mm -hmm. and over again. The heart behind it was, I can manipulate my God to do what I want them to do. And uh, and so it was a way of gaining power over Mm -hmm. their gods. I am kicking it over to you, and I'm going to shut up because I know you got so much good stuff (laughs) on this. You're good. Connect Um, that to Mormonism. I will. So there's two Greek words that I want people to to know from this very verse because it's going to connect. The batologio, which is the KGV, I think, unfortunately translates it vain repetitions. It's not... What what it's getting at, it's, it's a onomatopoeia, it's, it's like our word babble, where the sound of the word indicates what the concept of the word. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
it, it's this kind of meaningless um, commentators show that it can be magic words, chants, mantras over and over again, mindlessly repeating words because it's the effect you're going for more than the God you're actually worshiping or anything else. And by the way, to this day, um, you know, the Hindu priest caste in India, it doesn't even matter if you know the words, mm. what they mean. It, like literally, that's something that sets Hinduism apart. It, it's the pronunciation. I mean, so you can have generations of priests that don't even know what it is they're saying because it's the sound that they're mm. going for. See, the aesthetic that they're going for, it's the effect that they're going for. You know, so, something could be said on that point, a lot of what you see in so-called evangelical charismatic circles and this chanting in tongues mm. and things of that nature I, as well. I do think it can apply. Yeah. I do think anyways, it can apply. That's another story for another day. The Yes. It might come up later even, uh, at least another angle yeah. on that. There's a, a second word, which is the many words. It's palulogia. And it's endless repetition. And keep in mind, it's not just a long prayer that's being talked about here. Um, in Luke 6.12, right before him teaching this prayer in Luke, he's praying all night. So it's not repetition even. Like in, in uh, Matthew 26.44, Christ repeats him even the same words three times. It's this approach to prayer that he is he's um, taking on, right? Because what... It's not just those words. Once again, in this mindset, it's a God-centered approach, just as we mentioned with the Lord's Prayer, while Jesus is coming and saying, what does that kind of praying communicate about the gods of the pagans? Right? It's a misconception of God. So, you know... There's repetition in the Bible. Yes. I mean, Psalm 136, and Mm -hmm. you just brought up Matthew 26. So, yeah, Uh it's, it's, again, it's about the motives. It's what mm -hmm. are you, what is the prayer seeking to accomplish through his prayer? Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, it's a context in which the goal of prayer and ritual, which I'm going to tie in, and ritual uh, rites, you could even say in an LDS context, ordinances, and I'll get to that. Um, The goal is to inform God. I mean, he may be powerful, but. You know, you got to make requests over and over and make sure he gets it right. To persuade God, um, maybe he's reluctant to hear your requests. Um, maybe he doesn't have your interest in mind. And that's part of why uh, so many other systems required sacrifices and other things to kind of get the God on your side, to obligate God. You know, God is reduced, this is Terry Johnson, uh, God is reduced to a calculating judge or a machine for whom prayer quotients are fulfilled in exchange for the desired gifts. To manipulate God, right? Magical power, certain verbal formulas unlock the power of the deity. Um, this can be in words, but it can also be in body movements, right? And it treats the deity more as a either an impersonal force or a kind of natural force that you personalize. That's going to come up later. Um, I like this. In other words, repeat the right words in the right amounts and the God responds. This is how pagans pray. On and on and on, they chant and repeat their formula, seeking to inform, persuade, obligate, or manipulate their gods. And then he cites John Stott. What sorts of gods are these? These are not the infinite personal father who knows and cares. I would add the one God. Rather, they are forces which can be manipulated by words and magical incantations. They are powers which can be coaxed or pestered or battered through repetition into doing our will. Okay? So I think that's key because... Um, now, they, they're, they're nicer about Christians saying the Lord's Prayer today than they used to be. 
Um, so the, for example, the manual, as you pointed out, Brendan, they even point out vain words that can just mean meaningless words. Mm-hmm. But I do want to say on the interpreter, they did say, uh, you saw a hint of how they used to talk about the Lord's prayer, uh, in LDS culture. Um, when, she, uh, I can't remember who said it, but they said it's a, it's not to be a sort of rote incantation. Well, I kind of want to go into that. Because, it, yeah, I mean, it is not meant to be a rote incantation because of what that says about God, what that says about us, what the purpose of the prayer is, and who's teaching us. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will um, say, uh, one of the guys on the interpreter said, why, why don't they pray the prayer in Luke 18, um, right? Have mercy on me. And we do pray that. I don't, oh, yeah. I don't know how he's, <laughs> sometimes I get the impression they don't often interact with Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, we do pray that actually, oh, yeah. uh, and, and some do every day. Um, and one last thing on the interpreter, then I'm going to get into my spiel. There's a moment where the lady on the interpreter uh, on this chapter, on this lesson says, we actually live, to my mind, in a polytheistic society, and as if that's a negative. And I agree with her that's a negative. Mm-hmm. But I do want to say, you think? Yeah. We, you think we live in a polytheist? You mean yeah. here in Utah where there are three it's separate so beings in persons? like an us versus them statement. That's a very weird... When it's actually, I'm part of the them. Yes. Uh, in she, her examples, we have a multiplicity of gods before us, sporting events, cars. But she's like, the longer I live, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, it's all about relationships. It's all about family. And I, I want to say, what about the glory of God? She didn't say that as an example of what we should be focused on. It's relationships and family. I would just say... That's a, it, that's the very it's an example of the very thing you said as a multiplicity of gods, and if your religion is based on not including the women because they're married, uh, three separate beings and persons, you think we live in a polytheist? Yeah, I th- I think we do live in a polytheistic society. Mm. So all right, I'm going to move on from that. So can we just say though, yeah, that after observing the hypocrite and his mistake, and observing the pagan and his mistake, the most essential element to prayer is having the right God that you're praying to. Absolutely. The object. You have to know who God is mm-hmm. because everything about the way you pray and the why for why you are praying is going to have to do with who that God is. And Matthew hounds on who God is mm-hmm. over and over again. If I could just do this real quick. Um, and this is, uh, this is again just from Knox Chamberlain rattling off some of these important points. See, he says, as the language of 6-7-A is eludicated by 7-B, so the command of 6-A, which he's given some Greek notes here as well, so I'm skipping over some words, but it says, rests on the fact of 6-B. Your father, okay, who is your father? Your father is the one and only God. The Lord of heaven and earth, Matthew eleven twenty five. So there is no need to search for the right listener or for just the right name, right? This is Jesus' point. Your father knows what you need before you even ask him. He is the omniscient God, knows our needs, and therefore needs no instructions about them. Because he is the mighty God, he cannot be manipulated. He gives by his own free choice, and he will not be coerced into answering prayers against his will. You can see that in Matthew 6, 10b. 
Because he is the loving father, he need not be manipulated. He knows his children far better better than they, and he is far more eager than they to see those needs supplied. So who is your God? Well, it's being exposed right there in the text. Don't be like those pagans. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. You don't need to try to manipulate. You don't need to try to gain some power over him. He knows. He's omniscient. He, he's going to take care of you. Uh, so there's no need to try to use your prayer as some way of coercing him into an action that he otherwise wouldn't take. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, that's why the, getting the word father right is so key. Yeah. Because we would see this as an anthropomorphism. Yep. Right. And they would we take talked it about that literally a couple episodes ago. So right. We would see it as true analogously, whereas they would see it true literally, in, in, in literally in every way, but physically. Yeah. Uh, but still begotten spiritually. So I want to come back to that because I think that'll be a good point of contrast after going through. Some of what I prepared, and I, you know, for those listening, buckle up your seatbelts. We're going to do another just deep dive. A lot of this will be repetitive, uh, no pun intended. Um, but just remember, uh, repetitio mater memoriae. Repetition is the mother of memory. And sometimes, especially a system that at the foundational level has a logic to it. And Mormonism does. It absolutely has a logic to it. Um, you need to see how the pieces fit, and then things will start to make more sense. And including what I think is a projection from certain Mormons that we use the Lord's Prayer as a rote incantation. Mm -hmm. We're going to see who actually does use rote incantations. Okay, so let's... I'm going to start a little differently. Instead of starting with the who, I'm going to start with the where. And um, if I'll put a lot of citations in the notes to try to speed things up. There is a star in a place called Kolob. Okay? This is not where someone lives. It's a star that's equivalent to that solar system, what our sun is to ours. There's a planet that goes around Kolob, like our Earth goes around the sun. This is the planet that the Heavenly Father lives on. Okay. To be clear, this is LDS. This is LDS worldview. Yeah. World and I'm going to try, maybe Cosmology. this will help. Yes. Yeah. And, and of course, there's going to be little differences along the way. I hope that the people uh, listening that know some of the Mormon debates on these particulars will recognize, I'm just trying to build a framework here. I know there's wiggle room in each of these points at times, but I don't think I'm saying anything essentially wrong. So there's this idea that it's there that the Heavenly Father and Mother or Mothers organized, they'll say create, but organized a, an earth that is ours. Okay, And as part of the fall, that earth was moved to where it is now in our solar system. That's the fall. Okay, um, And this is, this is key to get because Adam and Eve... There's not a fall there. That's a descent. And um, sometime we'll do a deep dive on this because we're not doing it the detail it needs. This isn't, I'm not just saying this as a gotcha to try to anger people 
Um, Brigham Young taught that Michael was the father and who we call Eve was one of the mothers. Um, Parley Pratt did not agree, so that's not always been taught. But th- here's the point, though. Whether you think Adam and Eve were born, and they'll even use Luke 3 to say this, that Heavenly Father and Mother gave birth to Adam and Eve physically, and they came to this earth, which might be a little more mainstream view, or whether the gods brought the earth here, ate fruit of this fallen earth, their bodies charged with blood, they had children, and then they ate fruit from the tree of life, which purged their bodies of blood, and they went back. Mm-hmm. Either way, you see how you see the concept yeah. that's there. Yeah. And um, this is why they're seen as even heroic. Um, I want to read, I want to repopularize this book. He, John A. Woodsell and Why He Matters is, he was a key apostle, him and James E. Talmadge. I honestly think they're, they're more the founders of LDSism mm-hmm. than even Joseph Smith. Um, I know they what, felt... What were their years, approximately? The turn just, of the, the 20th century, into yeah. the 1900s, early 1900s. Yeah. Um, and... Why I say that, it's interesting the manual focuses so much on Joseph Smith because they have to because of the narrative of the church. Mm-hmm. But if you actually look at what Joseph Smith taught when he, he's most clear in his Nauvoo period, it's more what I'm going to be going into now. Yeah, You still have the essence of that continuing into LTSism, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of details that are left or a lot of stuff in the Brigham period that are developed that are left behind. And that's why I, I think even John Turner points out in his book, The Mormon Jesus, that James E. Talmadge's Jesus the Christ, which is even on the app and everybody can read and I've been consulting oh, yeah. often, it's it's not only just the book for LDS people and Jesus from what it includes, but what it leaves out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it doesn't include the wedding at Cana, it doesn't include that he's a polygamist, doesn't include that he was crucified for polygamy or anything like yeah. that. So that that book became the, the standard, mm-hmm. popular, red work, that that kind of is where you see a pretty significant turning point away mm-hmm. from some of the older Mormonism into yeah. what is now more modern and accepted. I think so. Mm-hmm. And... and um, like I said, a lot of this stuff that I'm going to go into today does survive in a different form. Um, but it's, you know, I do think a huge turning point. This is the turning point when they started to emphasize the first vision as the point of restoration. Yeah. Um, that was not true of early Mormonism. I, I, I sloppily messed this up. In I, I mentioned this in the introduction episode, but I didn't say it as exact as I should have. I'm, I was, I'm rusty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I was not expecting. To, I mean, we, were, we started the podcast within two weeks of bringing it. Oh over. yeah, and so I'm getting all these books out of storage units and trying to remind myself of all the details. So uh, I hope the listeners will bear with me a little bit on, on sometimes not always articulating it exactly right, but I'll get there. Well, this is an example. The, the first once you end polygamy in the, in the new and everlasting covenant that is the message of the church that's centered on the temple and all that. Yeah. Because need, that's what's happening in Talmadge's era. Yeah, right, right before. Because polygamy, he's on the cusp polygamy it. is what it was, 1895? Uh, yeah. And then 1905 so. is when they say they mean it. Yeah. So that's also tied to what they thought. Um, they thought J- Jesus was going to come back. Yeah. There was that, that f- if Joseph Smith lives till he's a certain age in the DNC, they interpreted that not as if he had lived, but as a prediction of Jesus' second coming. And so Wilford Woodruff probably took wives even after it, just secretly. Mm-hmm. And um, 
they they were convinced Jesus was coming back, and of course he didn't. Um, and um, so, so they've got to pivot. They right? do, because, but they because it's polygamy's slow. gone, and so it's it's time to. I mean, at least it's gone in terms of being able to be widely practiced as a central part of their religion, right? So now they've got to figure out how they're going to articulate mm-hmm. a lot of their new. Well, they're not new, but how how are they going to turn it? I focus guess. it, yeah. yeah, yeah, and and kind of refine it. So. Um, and, and this is what I should have said in the introduction episode. The apostasy narrative has been true of all forms of Mormonism. But what I was saying is the particular form that focuses on the first vision as this turning point. That It's kind of like the Enlightenment narrative where, you know, they just say everybody was a bozo until Voltaire said, hey, let's think. Um, <laughs> well, it, it was a very science-enlightenment narrative that they utilized um, to... Uh, focus on the first vision as the point of contact. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, um, and it, it was in 1905, 1906, where they really started to, okay, to excommunicate people. Though it's messy because they still had places in Mexico where they practiced it. The president of the church was even brought before a Senate committee yeah. and um, drilled about this. Mm-hmm. Pretty intense stuff. Well, Talmadge and Woodsaw are part of this era that, that tries to reframe the narrative of the restoration of the truths of the gospel law kind of stuff. And what Johnny would say was part of that. And he, he wrote a book called Irrational Theology um, as, you know, he's, he's an apostle. And listen to some of these quotations about the fall. Once again, I'm trying to get this sense of space as well as um, time uh, into this story. Sub, uh, okay, the fall. This is the heading, the fall. Adam and Eve were eternal beings not under the ban of mortal death. Subject to death, they must become, however, if their posterity should inherit corruptible bodies. The fall was a deliberate use of a law by which Adam and Eve became mortal and could beget mortal children. The exact nature of this event, or the exact manner in which the law was used, is not understood. The Bible account is undoubtedly only figurative. See that? Bible account, undoubtedly Figurative. There was no essential sin in the fall, except that the violation of any law, whether deliberate or otherwise, is always followed by an effect. See that? It's the it's this cause and effect. There's this set of self-existent true laws and principles. Yeah. That by which obedience to manipulation of kind of like a science like a vaccine. Yeah. Right? You you understand the disease and you you then um, use the knowledge to create something to challenge it and overcome it that they see as the gospel law of becoming gods right so um he goes on to say that it's really the first blessing um it's in a simple extension of another great law the uh, and listen to this uh adam and eve in view of the great sacrifices they made to make the great plan of reality are the great hero and heroine of human history. Mm. The great hero and heroine. And then uh, later on in this section, in a universe controlled and directed by an intelligent God, every intelligent will may ultimately control for its own use, not only things of the earth, but all forces of the universe. Right? So, I mean, you, you keep in mind, even when we say father, right? He says under the heading sex among the gods, 
Since we have a father who is our God, we must always have a mother who possesses the attributes of Godhood. See that the attributes of Godhood, mm-hmm. that the relationship between man and women, men and women is eternal, must continue eternally. So it's not that God created male, female, they are male, female. Right. And we see, so it's not that the relationship of the Trinity is the true reality. And then, you know, fatherhood on earth when it's at its best is a kind of um, replica of that, so to speak. It's a created finite replica of that. No, it's a literal thing based on laws. That's right. And um, this is key. So when they say in the beginning, they really mean a beginning. Yeah. So there's an eternal law of this idea of celestial marriage and the creation of worlds and the populating of those worlds through the divine father and the divine mother who possesses the divine attributes. And so every world that's created is ultimately seeking to tap into that law, manipulate it in whatever way necessary in order for a plan of salvation to be established that will allow the people who are being populated into that world to progress to that same divine status. Is that, is that, yeah, yes. I mean, no, yeah. totally. And, and, but it's, it's really that law that is the determining factor, yeah. right? So, so there's a law that is binding, uh, yes. Upon every divine creature, including man. Yeah. In, because the distinction between divine and human, that, that's not there, right? Yeah. They're just, they have more knowledge like a scientist, they're a better CEO. And, and there are talks that talk about the fa- God, the father, they say heavenly father is a CEO. They're a better everything. They're, it's quantitatively more, yeah. not um, ontologically distinct. Mm-hmm. And, and so let me, this, this ties into their temples. Sorry, I'm going to try to fit in a bunch here. Um, this Brigham sermon is so good on the purpose of temples. And I just want to point out for those that uh, the LDS that may be thinking, yeah, uh, um, like I was told by someone, they asked their parents about the Lord's Prayer. And they're like, yeah, we just don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's rote. It's, it's you know, <laughs> but they, they say a sacrament prayer the same way every time. You know, they do, they do um, temple ordinances where they have to do things the exact same way every time. And that makes sense in their system. That's what I'm trying to get at is why, why do they do that? So it has to be someone with authority saying the right words in the right place, temples, you can't do baptisms for the dead outside the temple or something like that, or at least in their mind, they sh- you shouldn't. Um, so the right words, the right way, at the right place, at the right time, yeah. and it binds things. And that key, that word binding is going to come out of Joseph Smith's early context, which we're going to get into in a minute. Um, but here, here's a Brigham Young um, sermon that I think is so good at getting at what, why temples for them. Uh, this is a sermon called the eternal existence of man. <laughs> yeah. Um, which if yeah. anything, the temple and its centrality within the faith has only been more emphasized in recent years yes. than even, you know, 10, 20 years ago, because mm-hmm. this is, I mean, every prophet kind of has their big thing, right? Mm-hmm. And Russell Nelson's big thing is let's build as many temples as we can all over the world, and so you're hearing about new temples opening all the time. So, yes. So this is this is critical to understand. Mm-hmm. You know, 
Russell Nelson knows he knows the purpose of these temples. Absolutely, right? I would. The, the only slight correction I would say is twenty years ago, um, if we say the Hinkley, Hinkley was also that way. Yeah. So, so it, it is true that it's ebbed and flowed in its emphasis a little bit. Yeah. But it really is the central feature of their religion, and I do want to point out, and I, I have before, but I'm trying to say this in love, especially for those who are questioning. And forgive me that I'm not always the best at being gentle. But, you know, even with polygamy that we brought up, it, it was the new and everlasting covenant. Like it is, if you read DNC 132, it's to justify David and Solomon in their polygamy. And Joseph Smith's practicing it, and it was public practice. And I would just say even Nelson is sealed to more than one woman. Oaks is sealed to more than one woman. If you say you don't believe it, why do you still practice it? in the most sacred place, or I should say, why did they, right? And um, I think it's, and once again, they think that, I mean, what, what do you even hear this when people stay or they feel fear? Um, I had an example, fear tactic even used against my mother, right? Of you're going to lose your family. What, what, what makes you think you're going to keep your family? Yeah. It's simply the fact that this ritual happened in the temple. Mm-hmm. And as long as you're trying to be faithful to it, God is bound to uphold his end of the bargain. Yeah. I, so it's fair to say that there are some serious power dynamics at work in the temple worship. Absolutely. I think it's the center. And even from our yeah. perspective, we would say there are spiritual powers at work yeah, that are I would agree. going on here. Uh, that I mean, obviously, from our perspective, we see these are demonic yeah, forces and powers. I do. But I do think but, so. Yeah. So here's Brigham Young in... Um, 1862, September 28th, 1862. I'm going to be jumping around a little bit here. Um, it is written that God knows all things and has all power. He has the rule and command of this earth. It sounds pretty orthodox, right? He has the rule and command of this earth and is the father of all the human beings that have lived, do live, or will live upon it. If any of his children become heirs to all things, they in turn can say by and by that they know all things and that they will be called supreme, almighty, king of kings, and lord of lords. Hear that? Mm-hmm. So these titles, king of kings, lord of lords, if you you know, continue on this path, you'll get those titles. Yeah. All those and more that cannot enter into our hearts to conceive is promised to the faithful and are but so many stages in that ceaseless progression of eternal lives. Now let me add to this cosmological picture here really quick. So this is true of Gnosticism and mysticism more generally as well. It is a bit different um, in Mormonism because of that material, spiritual distinction that's not there. But they see, and you see this DZ 76, right? Levels of heaven, glories, different levels of exaltation in their plan of salvation, right? And um, in DNC 76. By the way, hell is not clear there. You have a spirit prison, you have an outer darkness where I might go according to them, but maybe not even Judas will. Um, why, if you got, you want to go back, and that's another thing too, they will say the goal is to go back to the presence of the Father. That's a different view than we'd have, mm-hmm. right? It's, we don't have a story where we go there. Keep in mind, this ties to their pre-mortal council stuff, right. where we were spiritually there on earth, maybe around it. And we voted for Jesus. The Father chose his plan, depending on who. And then we agreed to come here. 
Then the planet falls, and then we're sent here to bodies, physical bodies, in its part. And then based on our knowledge, saved by knowledge, based on our experience, that's something Holland is more saying recently, based on how obedient to covenants you are, that might be one way they put it, that will determine how close you get going back to this planet, Mm -hmm. at least until if you attain that status, then you will go from there and build, organize worlds with your family, uh, with your wife or wives or whatever. Why does that matter? Because if in in the early Mormonism, this is something that started to go away with Woodso and, and, and Talmadge. Notice that all this, and this is Brigham Young, all this and more cannot enter into our hearts to conceive is promised to the faithful and are but so many stages in that ceaseless progression of eternal lives. Mm-hmm. Plural. Plural. And Joseph even said, you know, that um, the power of the Melchizedek priesthood was to have the power of an endless lives. And that's in the words of Prophet Joseph Smith. So there, there's this theme of lives and lives and lives. And the idea was you progress through these levels of the heavens, so to speak, till you get to that point. And something to point out that might not be stated, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to come up in these quotes. They think at different stages, you're going to have different gates, so to speak. And that can come through differently. Now, if you were to go through an LDS temple um, endowment, um, you would see this, especially in the old one when they used to have actors and you, you had to move through. But when I was in it, those were the ones I preferred. You go to different rooms representative of the different kingdoms, so Eden, Earth, and, and then go through the kingdoms until you get to a, um, a, a gate before the celestial kingdom where you have to say certain things to someone and have certain handshakes. And if you say it correctly, you can go through. So if you say the right words, you have the right authority, you're in the right place, you have the right time, you are tapping in to eternal laws that even God is accountable to. And there, there's value in how frequently you go through it's that. practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you want to memorize it and, yeah. and things like that. So it's, that's where we're getting at the repetition. Mm-hmm. And again, just to be clear, what, what we're doing here is really we are making the claim that exactly what Jesus is warning against in yeah. the pagans and the reason that they would pray, mm-hmm. which is at the heart of what he's trying to teach his disciples not to do in the way that they pray, because the most important thing in prayer is that you're praying to the right God. Yep. What we're saying is the elements that were present in the pagan religion, the Gentiles, are present in how there's these sort of repetitions and rites and things that have to be gone through in the Mormon worldview in order to tap into this sort of higher power to be able to manipulate your way into a better position in the next, into the next life. Absolutely. Yes. And I'm trying to do it as, as quickly as possible, which is hard to do. I hope people are sticking with me because this will pay off. Mm -hmm. This will pay off. And so they don't have the multiple mortal probations, which is think of it like reincarnation though. Someone who believes it will deny it. Um, they'll call it MMP. Um, that's not there anymore. Um, but you still have this idea that 
What you mean is multiple lives. Multiple lives. Like re- reincarnation you will, you will in order through, to get to exaltation yeah. by getting better and better and better in each life. Yeah, because you're eternal just like God. Yeah. Um, and, and so... That's not there anymore. Well, they would say that ontologically we are. Yeah. But they, won't, they don't have the multiple lives aspect mm-hmm. anymore. They would yeah. claim one life and then you go to a kingdom... You and progress, then you can progress you within progress that kingdom, in, right? That's, but yeah. you're set to that kingdom. But yep. I don't think it's as consistent with what I've called the more the deeper Mormon conception. Right. Yeah, and I think Brigham is here on this, and and frankly, it's in Woodso and Talmadge. They just don't really address this one directly. Uh, this will not detract anything from the glory and might of our heavenly Father. Sorry, quoting Brigham Young again. Um, meaning, if we progress and attain these titles, right? Like, if we attain these titles, are we? replacing God the Father. This is where LDS will push back on this. Brigham Young addresses it here, and this will help fine-tune how Christians think about this, I think, and LDS. But, you know, when you're dealing with this and you bring up this quote and they say, no, we don't think we replace God the Father. This will not detract anything from the glory and might of our Heavenly Father, for He will still remain our Father, and we shall still be subject to Him as we progress. So see, as we progress, He progresses. So... It's about titles in moving up. But as we move up, he moves up. This really sounds like an MLM right here. <laughs> <laughs> Which are pretty big here in Utah. Oh, man. So listen to this. In glory and power, it the more enhances the glory and power of, power of our Heavenly Father. This principle holds good in either state, whether mortal or immortal, which we would distinguish, right? When we die, mm-hmm. right, the night comes where no work can be done, right? And then he cites this. This is incredible. This is a Mormon hermeneutic right here. For unto us a child is born. This is Brigham Young's proof text. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. This is Isaiah 9, for those who don't know. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment, with justice from henceforth, even forever. End quote of Isaiah. Brigham Young continues, there will be no end to the increase of the faithful. So he goes on and says, there never was a time when man did not exist and there never will be a time when he will cease to exist. Once again, not the beginning, God exists. In fact, one of the things, you know, when Jesus teaches us to say, Father, even in the Nicene Creed, Father before Creator, because He's eternally the Father, is Jesus is eternally the Son. Here, and that's before man was created. Yep. Here, man has always existed. Uh, Brigham continues: Eternity is without confines, and all things animate and inanimate have their existence in it. Hmm. And then he points out the priesthood is quote co-equal in duration with eternity. Continuing, it gives to gods and angels their supremacy and power and offers wealth, influence, posterity, exaltations, power, glory, kingdoms, and thrones, ceaseless in their duration to all who will accept them on the terms upon which they are offered. One more. Uh, or I'm going to go, and then I'm going to jump to a temple sermon Brigham gave. But th- this is by Daniel H. Wells. October 26, 1862, uh, Daniel H. Wells, he's not as remembered anymore. Why does he matter? He was, um, in fact, he was part of the Nauvoo Legion uh, under Joseph Smith. Interestingly enough, even before he was baptized, he was a member of the First Presidency. He was a mayor of Salt Lake 
Um, he uh, even helped dedicate the St. George Temple. Um, and for those who like local history, um, he issued uh, an extermination order of the Timpanogos Indians who were in the va- very valley we're in um, and uh, killed many in Rock Canyon and Battle Creek Canyon. Uh, he, he led men or ordered men who led men. So he has a lot of Utah County history involved. Here's what he says, and I think this is a good one to show, once again, who's the real God here. Um, And by cleaving to the Lord of hosts, who is mighty to save, and by cleaving to those holy principles of life and power which he has revealed. See that? So he does say, the Lord of hosts, he's mighty to save. And by cleaving to the holy principles of life, he reveals. Okay? The more the floods of iniquity surge up against us, the closer let us cling to the principles. He leaves the Lord out of there. So I I don't know if that was conscious on his part, Mm -hmm. but when the storm comes up, what do you cling to? The principles, Mm -hmm. not the Lord. For they will bear us off victoriously to exaltation and glory in this world and in the worlds to come. Worlds, the levels of heaven, think D&C 76 and more. Because in some of this stuff, there's even a hint in Joseph Smith's stuff that maybe there were seven heavens in the upper echelon of the heavens. The same principles have exalted our Father and our God to his present state of glory and power. See, those principles exalted our Father and God to his present state of glory and power, and they will exalt you and me and all who will abide them in the scale of human existence and eternal progression. He then says, they have always existed and will continue, always will continue to exist. This is key too. Like, you know, a lot of people um, don't see this, but like even Parley Pratt, who is an interesting Mormon thinker in and of himself, he, of course, fought Brigham on many things. Um, a book I've pushed a couple times, Conflict in the Quorum, that's about the debates between Parley Pratt and Brigham Young. One of the points that Parley would say is that we don't just worship God, but we worship his attributes. And, uh, uh, here's a quote from him. When we worship the Father, we do not worship merely his substance, but we worship the attributes of that substance. So you can kind of see that like the virtues take on its own appeal because it's by those that God became who he is. And so if you tap into those, yeah. you're tapping into, so to speak, the God above God, mm-hmm. these laws, these principles. The um, last Brigham quote, it's so important. It, this is on the southeast cornerstone of the temple in Salt Lake, April 6th, 1853. And he defines the endowment here. Um, first off, he does some interesting hermeneutics here that I will skip. But if you read it, you'll see how he uses the Bible. It's very interesting. Um, and his view of uh, Jesus in the temple. He does bring up apostasy. And then that the pattern of temple was restored to Joseph Smith. And then he says this, Be assured, brethren, there are but few, very few of the elders of Israel now on earth who know the meaning of the word endowment. Let me give you the definition in brief. Your endowment is to receive all those ordinances in the house of the Lord, which are necessary for you after you have departed this life, to enable you to walk back to the presence of the Father, passing the angels who stand as sentinels, being enabled to give them the key words, signs, and tokens pertaining to the holy priesthood and gain your eternal exaltation in spite of earth and hell. 
Now, this is something that, too, that um, trying to tie this together and end up end here um, as quickly as possible. I've got a few more things. When they say not even earth and, and hell can stop you, this is a deep insight into the ancient mindset that we may not understand because of our view of names. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're in a crowded room and someone yells your name, you immediately respond, right? Think about that theologically. If you know the name of a god, you have in some sense control of them. And that is a very pagan view that's at the core of what's called the magic worldview. Yeah. And that that is what's being avoided in the name of Jesus. Or, Yes, the name of Jesus. What I mean is the name Yahweh, because if you look at it, it's not a noun; it's a yeah. verb. Yeah. It, it's it's trying to get away from this name view of the pagans, though it, it there is a name theology in the Old Testament distinguished from it. Yep. So, a lot of this comes through Joseph Smith's own life, and I don't have enough time to get into all this. I wish I did. Um, there's a book called Mormonism in the Magic Worldview. I'm drawing on heavily, but not entirely. When people talk about, and especially to those people who are questioning, about Joseph Smith's folk magic and things like that, yeah, it's and there's even an essay on it, I think a church LDS Gospel Topics essay on it. The way it's often spun, I think, is not fair to what's, what's going on. So even a Richard Bushman, I'm going to disagree with a lot of them will say, yeah, it was there. They used to deny it was there. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, they used to deny the receiver stones and now they publish pictures of the Brown one that Joseph Smith probably used yeah. to find the plates and translate them as well as many other things. A magic rock by which if you put in a hat, he claims he could see words mm-hmm. and translate languages. Um, but it's actually, I think, central to understanding Mormonism. Yeah. It's not just a quirk of Joseph Smith's life. And I hope you're starting to see what I'm saying here. Mm-hmm. Um, first off, you know, this this kind of folk magic thing, it, it's deep in Smith's family. Joseph Smith Sr. even told Fayette Lepham that he was a believer in witchcraft in an interview with this guy. Um, and he brought up his family in it. Mm-hmm. Like he literally said, I believe in witchcraft, brought up my family in it. Um, we have divining rods, um, Joseph Smith and also Oliver Cowdery's father, William yep. Cowdery, uh, who of course was integral in the bringing forth of the Book of Mormon. That's why he matters. Yep. Oliver Cowdery. They probably were part of a fraternity of rodmen, um, a, a kind of a secret society using them. These are not just tools to find treasure. Yep. Um, this is where you're, some of the narratives out there aren't helpful. They were also seen as instruments of revelation. You have seer stones. Joseph Smith's glass-looking, Lucy Max, palmistry. We have family. Uh, the Hiram Smith family preserved a magic dagger for ritual magic. Um, and D. Michael Quinn makes this comment that's very helpful, that sometimes they'll be like, well, it comes from Freemasonry, but it predates it. Yeah. And if you actually look at the symbols on this magic dagger for ritual magic, it has nothing to do with Freemasonry, but it has everything to do with ceremonial magic. We have three magic parchments that all have to deal with finding treasure and things like that, binding spirits, um, tons of astrological material, um, including astrological guides that um, 
perhaps even uh, influenced when he married people. Yeah. And, and these, even are, had kids. these are things in the church records, mm-hmm. I'm assuming. Yep. Yeah. We have a Jupiter talisman that he was even wearing when he was assassinated. Um, it, we have a Palmyra neighbor claiming that Joseph Smith um, studied under Walters, who's a magician known for his strange books. And some of these books, um, I have a copy of one of them, go into the occult and how to use these instruments and use spells and things like that to bind spirits and get what you want from them. And for those who say, well, that's not relevant post-Book of Mormon, why do they continue to call, I mean, Brigham Young continues to call the plates treasure. Mm -hmm. It's called treasure. Um, And you can see that when you know the names of these spirits, you bind them. Well, when you know that in Brigham Young, on the purpose of the temple, you know the names of angels, you bind them, yeah. or things like that. Uh, they don't have names of angels there, but I think that's the kind of mindset that I'm trying to uh, point out. Yeah, and so Quinn in his book is really showing that people have deeply misrepresented just how into the magic worldview Joseph Smith was. Absolutely. I mean, it was actually, in many ways, the air he breathed. Absolutely. And I think it's the air that most LDS breathe without knowing it. Yeah. And again, this shouldn't surprise us even from our worldview, because this sort of magic occultic worldview is what we saw happening in the pagan gods that were being combated in Paul's day. You know, it's what we see poking through in things like Gnosticism. Um, This is the way that... Just to be really blunt, evil forces, Satan himself, deceives and works um, in the... In the this is the powers of darkness, right? So you have a really powerful story in the New Testament, I think, that represents this in the the account in Ephesus. You know, in the, in the account in Ephesus, you can go read this in Acts 19. We don't have time to go through it, but Paul goes and preaches the gospel to the Ephesians and when they hear and believe the gospel, there is an actual power dynamic at play where they realize that they have been they have been aligning themselves, yes, with powers, but with evil, wicked powers, demonic powers. And that was expressed in all these magic practices. And so you've got this beautiful story in Acts 19 of, of all these people going and burning like millions of dollars worth of magic books. They're giving up their magic practices because they've come to realize that Christ is the power above every power. And then, of course, you've got in that same story the Jewish, you know, the sons of Sceva who are trying to manipulate the name of Jesus. They're trying to invoke the name of Jesus to gain their own, um, you know, betterment in the society. And they get rebuked heavily for it. And then, of course, you've got in Ephesians chapter 1 just the beautiful, beautiful scene. And I think this is worth even reading uh, just quickly. And then I'll kick it back over mm-hmm. over to you there for wrapping it up. But th- this is Ephesians chapter 1. Let me just read it. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you... a the, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And then listen to this. This is where you see Paul showing how the gospel directly confront, confronts the magic worldview, uh, because this is what these people have come to believe. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, 
that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's our God. Mm -hmm. Our God is the God that is the power above every power, the name above every name, the one at whose, uh, whose feet every single power falls because he is supreme. And, you know, Paul's dealing with the same sort of concept in the supremacy of Christ and how he says Christ is preeminent in Colossians chapter mm-hmm. one. He's dealing with these pagan cultures that have a magic worldview that are trying to manipulate powers, and he's trying to show them it. the buck stops at Jesus. Yep. He's the power above every power. Yep. And so there is a creator again, creation distinction, mm-hmm. right, that shows that this God is the preeminent God who, who has all power in himself. Yes. And one day he is going to vanquish every other power. Absolutely. And and it, it reframes our view of time. It reviews our time, our view of this space and what the goal of human life is. Um, let me, I, I want to get to some of more what Paul is responding to in context. But just really quick, if you, if you look even in the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, even think of the autumnal equinox, even based on Joseph Smith's astrological chart, it's there. Oliver Cowdery saw was there. Martin Harris said that even that night, they were uh, the night of Moroni's visit, September 22nd, 1823. He was, they were looking for treasure. Um, and you see this in the Book of Mormon. You have probably a seer stone in Alma 37, 23, and 24. I know some will say that the gazellum is supposed to be Joseph Smith, but it's interesting, in the 1841 edition of the Book of Mormon, Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball were okay in the index of having gazellum, a stone, secret. Uh, Wilford Woodruff defined gazellum as the name of the brown seer stone that they released a picture of um, pretty recently. Um, you have familiar spirits, 2 Nephi 26, 14 through 17, that refer to necromancy. Um, sealing, think of what that means. When they say get sealed, they don't say marriage. What is a seal, right? It's it's a bind, it's a sell, it's a charm it's a tie-in it's it's a way of binding it and you can only undo the bind if you have a greater authority or greater knowledge and then even some of the names d michael quinn shows probably of the book of Mormon probably have occult origins including most famous nephi which might come from nephilim um, and then if you look at first nephi 1 2 language of the jews language of the egyptians learning of the jews language of the egyptians which was probably the mystical view of the jews and then the language of the egyptians keep in mind egypt was seen as the center and transmitter of magic and this ties into the book of abraham stuff we don't have time to get into but if you look at the facsimiles that joseph smith couldn't translate and that should be stated right up front he can't translate these but if you actually look at what the facsimiles are they're about the departed, the dead, having enough knowledge to go through gates and levels of heavens mm. to the field of reeds. I've got a book here, Knowledge for the Afterlife, that goes through the Egyptian Amduat as a quest for immortality that goes through. And of course, you got to keep in mind, this, and this is more ancient. This this would be more relevant in Paul's day, but it would predate Paul. Yeah, This is relevant in, you know, the Isaiah's day, right? Is in, in, in mummification, the heart was the only organ they left. They thought you thought with your heart. Mm-hmm. And then they would have manuscripts. And what, what Joseph Smith didn't translate, one of them, the, the, 
the facsimiles is one of these. Yeah. Um, it, they would put it near the heart. Also on the inside of uh, coffins, um, they had star charts, poems, things you could say, and reminders. So they thought that the p- departed spirit, and it's not technically right to call it spirit, but just, just roll with me for a minute. They could see that knowledge and then remember the knowledge they needed to get through the gates that are guarded by, uh, I'm not, I'm being, they're not angels, but you know, different d- spirits mm-hmm. and to, to get through to where they want to go. Right. And, and keep in mind in the Egyptian system, the, the though the, there was so much emphasis on the Pharaoh and on a particular God set of gods, the really the ruling thing was the concept mod. So any form of Egyptian religion is this kind of abstract principle that the gods themselves in some senses are accountable to. And I I even have a book here by an Egyptologist named R.T. Rundle Clark who says this, in order to reach the heights of the sky, the soul had to undergo those transformations which the high God had gone through as he developed from a spirit in the primeval waters to his final position as sun God or into some of the assistants at these great events. Showing this, that once again, this view that you, 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 if you have the right authority, the knowledge, the whatever, you can go and progress through these levels of the heavens. Yep. So um, John Oswald points out that in, in the, the worldview the Bible is arguing against in this great book, The Bible Among the Myths, let me just point out a few quick things. That, that there's this idea that pan, of pantheism that's there too, that they have this continuity between deity, humanity, and nature. There's not a creator-creation distinction. And that leads to the idea that everything is, in a sense, divine. You have that in Mormonism with intelligences. Right. That's the magic worldview, right? It's trying to tap into even what seems unintelligent. There's intelligence there that if you say the right things with the right authority, you can make mm-hmm. it move. Yep. And they would say that Jesus in doing his miracles just has higher authority and more knowledge to be able to say water turned to wine, but it's based on self-existent laws. Um, and the significance of magic, once again, he says the use of beings believed to have supernatural power over natural forces. There's in all of them, they have the eternity of chaotic matter. In all of them, they have the eternity of chaotic matter. And this is key um, that the gods are not absolute that there is a raw impersonal power that he calls the meta-divine behind everything, that which magic seeks to tap into and utilize, that to which the gods themselves are subject and which they seek to use against each other. And so this, all, all of this is very contrary to even the rituals in Israel, for example, where, for example, there was entire priests of the ancient world that would use kidneys to try to predict the future, things like that. What do, what do the Israelites priests do? priest to the kidney. Oh, oh, that thing that's so important to everybody else, go burn it. Yep. Go burn it. One last thing. If you, if there is not a salvation sense in this system, what is there for Jesus, right? So in, in DNC 82, it says, if you do, uh, in fact, maybe I, I should read it exactly. And notice the word Bind. In this, and this is uh, is pointed out uh, by one LDS scholar named Cleon Skousen. This is Doctrine and Covenants eighty two ten, and he says the context is to wicked men, and he says this, uh, and this is the verse: "I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say, 
But when you do not what I say, you have no promise. Mm-hmm. Bound, yeah. binding language. See, that this stuff is still there. I mean, it's, it didn't go away. Like I said, J- Joseph Smith was killed with a Jupiter talisman on. And this is the comment from Cleon Skousen. This is a mandate from heaven that when they obey his commandments, he is required by the fixed laws of eternity to fulfill his promises. The converse law is also the return. So, that, I mean, that's why they, they have a quirky view of Cain we'll get into some other time, but that he fulfilled the brute requirement to come to earth, even though God is really smart, so he could foresee that he would be a murderer. But, you know, he, he fulfilled the requirement, so God was bound to send him to get a body. Well, if there's no sense of the fall in the beginning in time going somewhere, what is there for Jesus to be? Like, if you think about this system, yeah. what role is there for Jesus? Yeah. It's for him to be a revealer of secret knowledge. Yep. So you de-emphasize the cross, mm. which they do. Yep. You de-emphasize who he is, which they do. You reject the creator-creation distinction, which they do. Mm-hmm. You reject that there was a beginning to time, end of creation, which they do. It's eternal pre-create matter. It's not the beginning, it's a beginning. And we, we, we have an example of this in Christian history. They're called Gnostics, mm-hmm. where the, Jesus is a revealer of secret knowledge. And um, in some of these texts in the Nag Hammadi Library, it includes names of angels by which you can control them. Yeah. So why, and I could go into to more. I hope, I hope people are still listening. Um, why does this all this matter? Because the most important part about the Lord's Prayer is who God is, as you pointed out. Who is this God? He's, he's the creator of heaven and earth, but even before that, he's Father, Son, and Spirit. So we say Father. He's sovereign. He's in control. Um, we are his creatures, though we are allowed to call him Father. Mm-hmm. But understanding that the analogical use of that language, not the literal use of that language. But there's just, if you you don't have the context and you have a different context, all of a sudden the question of the cross starts to just fade more and more into the background. Yeah. And, and... And the, and the, the question of what I must do in order to manipulate or work my way into this divine purpose becomes the forefront of everything. Yeah. Because, I mean, think of that Holland talk we went through. Mm-hmm. What's the purpose Jesus came? Does he say the cross? You almost get the impression that these are things that just happened accidentally to happen in his life. But, yeah. but really, ultimately, he's here to reveal and restore the secret knowledge of how we ascend the heavens back to the presence of the Father by knowing, having the right authority, saying the right things at the right time to manipulate the sort of laws that even govern God. Yeah. And you, you see this come through, like uh, in one of the Mormon podcasts I listened to, it said, don't let God get in the way of being good. Mm-hmm. There it yeah. is. There it is. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father, 
knows what you need before you ask him. I'll just say very quickly, the, the Bible that we're reading right now is constantly keeping at the forefront the distinction between the Father and his creation. Um, D.A. Carson even notes, he says, uh, striking is Jesus' use of pronouns with Father. When forgiveness of sins is discussed, Jesus speaks of your Father, chapter 6, verse 14 to 15. Why? Because Jesus doesn't need the forgiveness of sins. Yep. So it's your Father when he's talking about the forgiveness of sins and excludes himself. When he speaks of his unique sonship and authority, he speaks of my father, example, Matthew eleven twenty seven, and excludes others. He doesn't include others at that point because there's a uniqueness. There's a way that he is eternally the son and God is eternally the father. The our father at the beginning of this model prayer is plural, but does not include Jesus since it is part of his instruction regarding what his disciples ought to pray. And so his disciples who are praying to an eternally existent God, a God who possesses within himself all power, all authority, the God who is above every name. And yes, I'm talking about Jesus when I say that, the Father, the Son, the Holy, the Holy Spirit, Spirit, our Trinitarian God. When you pray to him, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Not my kingdom. I'm not trying to build my own kingdom. Right. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's that creator-creation distinction. God's up in the heavens. Mm-hmm. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Don't forget it. All right. That's good stuff. Um, again, if you have any further comments, questions, things of that nature, we love feedback. You can reach us at distinctivechristianity at gmail.com uh, or you can find us on Instagram or Facebook. We're not yet on any of the other platforms, and I don't know if or when we will be, but uh, yeah, please, please do. You know, leave us any feedback you have. It is so helpful to receive. Did you have anything you wanted to wrap up with there, Skylar? Just one. Skylar has about three hours more content over here. But just one quote from <laughs> Scott Swain to go along with what That's you good. said. Yep. The fatherhood of God is transcendent, right? Our Father who is in heaven. There's an intimacy and a transcendence, mm-hmm. and if you compromise either of them, you have the wrong God. That's right. Because the fatherhood of God is primary, first in the order of being and first in the order of meaning, and because the fatherhood of God is unique, determined by God's fatherhood alone, and not by any external standard of fatherhood, external standard, the fatherhood of God transcends all creaturely limitations. Unlike the fatherhood of creatures, the fatherhood of God is not dependent, not composite, not changing, not limited, and not temporal. It is self-existent, simple, immutable, infinite, and eternal. God's radiant fatherhood is above all other forms of fatherhood. He is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That's James 1, 17. That's good stuff. Appreciate y'all listening and sticking with us. And next week we'll be in Matthew 8, Mark 2 to 4, and Luke 7. We'll see you then.